Will you pray with me this morning? Father, we come before you thankful for this time together, for time to spend in worship, time to sit as your gathered people, even as we are in different places. Lord, we pray that as we come before you this morning, that we would find refuge here, that your comfort and peace would overflow upon us, that we would find rest in this place among your people. Lord, we recognize that you are here. You are with us. In whichever way or whatever place we gather, your presence goes with us. You go before us. Lord, turn our eyes towards you this morning. And we come before you and we praise you as our Lord and creator, as the author and perfecter of our faith, as the light that shines in the midst of a dark and weary and broken world a light that not, cannot be overcome by any darkness. You are greater than anything we might face on this earth, Lord, and we thank you that that is the reality of the God we worship this morning. Lord, we saw this past week just how dark and broken our world is yet again. We saw this attack against the Asian community in Atlanta, and we know it's happening in many other places. In the, in the voices I heard this week of many friends, there is deep-seated pang against so many among the Asian American and Pacific Islander community. Father, we know you hear their pain. You see them in this. May we, who this community comprises so many people we love, do that as well. May we hear their stories. May we be alongside them and, and with them in their grief. Father, we pray for those who lost people they love this week. We ask that you would comfort them in the midst of not knowing how to move on, not knowing what might come next. We pray for those who have experienced other instances of racism and hate and harm. Lord, we pray for those who, who are experiencing deep grief and very real fear because of what's happening in our world. May you be with them, Lord, in Atlanta, in our community right here as well, because we know it happens here. Lord, may you open our eyes of how we may be a brother and a sister to those around us. For we know that you call us to something more than this. You call us to live in the reality that each of us is your child that you hold all of us in the palm of your hand at the same title and status in your eyes. May this be made known throughout the entire earth because of the work that you're doing in each of us. May we be a reflection of your glory, of your love, of your grace and your mercy to those around us. May we reflect your great and glorious light in the midst of darkness. Let us stand in the face of it and know that it cannot be overcome because you are with us. You equip us powerfully with your mercy and that we get to be your people together as one body. Father, we pray for that this morning. May, may our hearts and the, the meditations of our hearts be turned towards you. 
Lord, we ask that as we continue in our worship, as Sean comes and shares with us, that you would open our hearts and our minds to whatever it is you have for us today, Lord. Draw us nearer to you, Lord. We love you, Father. We thank you for this time to be your people together in this place. In your great and glorious name, amen. Before Sean comes to share with us this morning, we turn our attention to our scripture reading. And we, for this, we go to an earlier passage in John. And as we read it, we get to hear the reality of our world being filled with darkness, but through the presence of our Savior, we live in his glorious light. So hear these words from John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Good morning. My name is Sean Reese. I'm one of the pastors here. And I don't know about you, but I was mesmerized at Amanda Gorman's poem, The Hill We Climb. As you probably know, Amanda Gorman is the young lady who is America's first ever National Youth Poet Laureate. Now, although I'm not a poet, um, I thought her poem was outstanding. And she brought in many images, even many images from scripture. And probably because I had this passage in my mind, I definitely um, heard that she wrapped the poem in the image of light. She began the poem by saying, when day comes, we ask ourselves, where can we find light in this never-ending shade? And she ended the poem by saying, for there is always light. If only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. Well, in today's text, Jesus claims to be the light, the light of the world within the never-ending shade of humanity's sin and rebellion. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for your great love for us. And now as we come to your word this morning, we invite your spirit to enlighten us, to open the eyes of our heart. And may your spirit help us walk in your light. In Jesus' name, amen. While we continue this week within the feast of tabernacles in John chapter 8. The Feast of Tabernacles must have been important to John because he gives three chapters 
of his gospel to it. And during these chapters, we have seen that conflict and controversy characterize almost every scene. Over the last three Sundays, we've moved through the week of the feast. The first Sunday, we explored Jesus' initial teaching at the feast, which was in the middle of the week, and his teaching caused great division among the people. The next Sunday, we moved to the last day of the feast, the great day where Jesus boldly proclaimed those golden words inviting everyone to drink of his living water. Last Sunday it's, um, was the day after the feast, and Jesus washed a woman caught in adultery with his living water. So today, we pick up the story on the evening of that day, the day after the feast. And although the feast is over, everyone is living, still living, in the glow of the previous week. That is to say that, as I've been saying every week, the Feast of Tabernacles was simply the highlight of the entire year. It was the most joyous time of the year. Now, as I have already also said, there were three key components to this feast. A water ceremony, which um, happened every morning, a light ceremony, which happened every evening, and a theological affirmation of the presence of God, which happened throughout the week. We explored the water ceremony two weeks ago. We'll explore the affirmation of God's presence next week. Today, we focus in on the light ceremony. Now, this was also called the illumination of the temple. And to begin with, we need to imagine ourselves back in the ancient world. In the ancient world, there was no light at night. They simply didn't have light at night, except for candles or maybe some fires. It was pitch black. And it's kind of hard for us to understand this because our cities are lit up all night. Nowadays, as Jill said in the kids' message, the only time we experience pitch black is when we go camping or when we go backpacking. Although I do remember my first trip to Liberia in 2009, driving from the airport to where we were lodging, and I remember vividly driving and there were no lights. And it made an impact, I, re I remember that. Um, the other point to be made is this. At the end of our text, verse today, verse 20, we are told that Jesus is teaching in the temple, within the treasury. Now, the treasury is located in the court of the women. So as you travel into the temple, you would pass through the court of the Gentiles, where everyone was permitted to go, and then you would come into an inner court called the court of the women, this is as far as Jewish women could go. And this is the place where the temple treasury was at. So it's a very, very busy place. But it's also the place where there were four giant candlesticks located. 
In the slide, you can see two of those candlesticks. These candlesticks were over 70 feet high. That's seven stories. And there were large ladders that went to the top of these. Um, and on top of each candlestick were four large golden bowls. The golden bowls were filled with olive oil, some 65 liters of olive oil. And in the bowls were wicks. The wicks were made from the undergarments of the priests. Apparently, it was a great honor for the priests to have their undergarments used as wicks. <laughs> My kids always thought that was a funny point. Um, on each evening of the feast, young, healthy priests would ascend each ladder to light these wicks, to light these giant candlesticks, and they would stay lit all night long. Now, these candlesticks were so bright and so blazing that one ancient text says that no courtyard in the entire city of Jerusalem was left in the dark. Another ancient um, text says that Jerusalem glistened like a diamond in the night and was known as the light of the world during the Feast of Tabernacles. And of course, the people partied all night long. They would dance and sing and sing psalms of praise to God um, all night. And you can understand why now. At no other time of the entire year was there light at night, and especially never this much light. I don't think the Jews slept the entire week. And remember that these feasts were times to remember and renew. So what specifically are the people remembering with this feast, with this light ceremony? Well, in the Old Testament, light primarily symbolized God's presence. God dwelled in light. So light was and is a fundamental attribute of God. And because he is light, he can guide. And since this feast remembered the wilderness wanderings, the Jews remembered God guiding their ancestors through the wilderness with a cloud by day and a fire and fire by night. There were obviously no maps back then, no way to get across the Sinai desert. And so the Israelites needed a guide and they were saved by the light of God. As Psalm 78 says, he divided the sea and led them through. He made the water stand up like a wall. He guided them with the light by day and with light from the fire all night. And just like the water at Horeb, over time, this physical experience became symbolic of future hope. The hope for future salvation. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The hope for God's continued guidance. Your word, uh, Psalm 19, 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. 
Isaiah 60, the sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. The hope for Israel fulfilling their mission. Isaiah 60 again, and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. And the hope for a coming Messiah described in Isaiah as a suffering servant. Isaiah 42, the first servant song, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. And Isaiah 49, the second servant song, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So all week, during the light ceremony, these texts and many more are read as the people remember and celebrate God as light and as guide while also looking forward to the coming Messiah who will bring God's salvation. It happened every night of the feast. And now we're ready to hear Jesus' words. We're on the evening of the la- after the last day of the feast in the court of the women. At some point during that day, Jesus had, had um, washed his grace and truth over an unnamed woman caught in adultery. And now a group has gathered again for his teaching. The court, which would have been ablaze each night, is now dark. John 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Well, again, what timing on Jesus' part and what boldness. If I, if I were to paraphrase what Jesus is saying here, I think he's saying something like this. You've seen the light of the temple piercing the darkness every night, illuminating all of Jerusalem for an entire week. Yet I am the light that illumines the whole world. For the one who follows me, there will be light not only for a few nights, but for every night and forever. The light of those large candles were, the light was a brilliant light, but in the end, they flickered and died. I'm the light that never flickers and never dies. Wow. Jesus could have said these words Anytime, anywhere, but he chooses to say them at the Feast of Tabernacles during the light ceremony. Well, as a way of understanding them better, I want to take each phrase and just say a few more words about each phrase. 
Jesus begins by saying, I am the light of the world. He doesn't say the light of Cupertino or the light of Sunnyvale or the light of San Jose. He doesn't even say the light of America or the light of Europe or the light of Asia. He says the entire world. It's a staggering claim. As Leslie Newbegin says, the theme of light is so central and pervasive, both in the Old Testament and in contemporary religion of the time, that these words could only be understood as conveying a claim of cosmic significance. Indeed, Jesus literally says he is the light of the cosmos. Which of course means this is not about me and Jesus. This is not a private claim. This is for the entire world, the entire cosmos. And by saying this claim during the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus more closely associates himself with Yahweh of the Old Testament. It seems that Jesus was somehow mysteriously present in the light that led the Israelites through the wilderness. It's, it seems that Jesus was somehow mysteriously present in the light of the Shekinah glory which descended on Solomon's temple years later. And it seems Jesus is somehow mysteriously Isaiah's suffering servant that the nation, indeed, the whole cosmos was hoping for and longing for. Well, Jesus goes on, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. We have to follow him. Literally, it is to keep on following him. As the Israelites had to keep following the cloud and pillar of fire, in the wilderness, or they would get lost. So we must constantly fix our eyes on Jesus so we won't get lost within a secular culture. Just as the Israelites had to pick up and move when the cloud and fire moved, so we must pick up and move when Jesus moves. We must remain attentive to what he is doing in our lives and follow him staying right on his heels, remaining in his light. As Michael Reeves joyfully says, as birds sing the loudest in the light of the sun, so Christians sing the loudest when engulfed in the light of the world. I'm not sure about the singing part, but about the make, making a joyful noise, yes, Follow me, Jesus says, and you will not walk in darkness. Jesus waits until these massive candles have gone out and is presumably sitting with the crowd in, in darkness. Darkness. It's not a place we like to be. As children, we were all scared of the dark. For good reason, darkness brings insecurity. Darkness brings fear and worry and anxiety. When, I, when I'm backpacking and I'm laying in, the, in my hammock in the middle of the mountains and I hear a noise, it brings anxiety. 
was that a bear? Darkness also causes us to trip over things, stumble over things. When we get up in the middle of the night, the first thing we do is turn on the light. Otherwise, we'll stub our toes or trip over our shoes. Darkness also brings confusion and disorientation. And isn't that a picture of our culture? Confused and disoriented. As I read the news, I see our culture try to make sense of difficult topics. And I'm always struck by the confusion. As our culture tries to make sense of morality, sexuality, spirituality, inequity, confusion abounds. Because the world is in the shade, it's in the dark. And this is the great gift of post-modernity. Total confusion. Without the truth of Jesus, the light, everyone has authority. And when everyone has authority, everything is relative. And that results in absolute confusion. But I, I get the sense I get the sense that people are growing tired of being confused. I think people are growing tired of stumbling in the dark. Could it be that our culture is ready to hear solid truth in love? Could it be that our culture is ready to hear about the light of Jesus? Well, Jesus goes on. We will not walk in the confusion of the darkness, but we will have the light of life. Jesus is saying that he is the one that can guide us to safety. He is the one who can push back the darkness in our lives. He's the one who can reveal what is hidden in our lives, not to shame us, but to heal us. He is the one who will reveal the path to life for us. He'll reveal the truth of life for us. He'll reveal life to us, period. With Jesus, we have the light of life. As Paul says in Ephesians, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Well, as you can imagine, the response by his hearers, is not positive. Jesus says he is the light, claiming all those opposing him are in the darkness, and all those opposing him believe they are in the light, and Jesus is in the darkness. The religious leaders essentially call Jesus an egomaniac again, and they question his origins again. And the debate gets very heated very quickly, and we'll pick up the debate next Sunday with next week's sermon. For now, though, I want to to simply walk through some implications of Jesus being the light of the world. There are so many, but let me give you four this morning. Number one, Jesus, the light, 
reveals God to us. If we choose to let Jesus light our way, we'll never be in the dark about God. We'll never be in the dark about who God is and what he is like. As Daryl Johnson says, Jesus, the light of the world, leads us out of the vagueness of God talk so that we may know God as God really is. Indeed, Jesus is God with a face. Now, this doesn't happen overnight, of course. He's too big to know immediately, but step by step, day by day, month by month, year by year, Jesus reveals God to us as we walk with him through each day and as we spend time in his word. In fact, in these middle chapters of John, these religious leaders are wrestling with this this exact thing. Who is God and what is he like? Last week's text is a prime example. Jesus' opponents forgot that God was a God of overwhelming mercy, showing compassion and mercy to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's how God revealed himself to Moses. And the leaders forgot. And Jesus in forgiving the unnamed woman, reminds them what God is really like. He's a God of grace first. Otherwise, we'd all be in trouble. In chapter 14, Jesus will go on to say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And Paul will later say, Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God. Jesus is the perfect revelation of the living God. Stay in the light of Jesus and and you'll never walk in the dark about who God is and what God is like. Number two, Jesus the light reveals true humanity to us. If we attach ourselves to Jesus, we'll never be in the dark about what it means to be human. Jesus is not only the perfect revelation of who God is, he's also the perfect revelation of who we were created to be. He is the true human. And our lifelong goal as Christians is to become more and more formed into his image. Scott McKnight calls this becoming Christo-formed. We slowly and slowly become formed into the image of Christ, the true human. That is to say that we not only believe him, but we embody his teachings and his way of life. Over time, his character through the Holy Spirit is reproduced in us, which takes a lifetime because nothing in the spiritual life happens in a hurry. But there are two character traits in particular that really stand out about Jesus in this regard. First of all, he loves and trusts his heavenly father completely. From the very beginning, he was about his father's business because he loved him and trusted him. During his ministry, he was always finding time to get away, to enjoy communion with his father. So this must be important 
for being truly human. Secondly, he loves others, even his enemies, even the other. When he's dying on the cross, he forgives his enemies. That must also be important for being truly human. If we stay with Jesus in his light, he will reveal to us what it means to be truly human. Number three, three, Jesus the light reveals the human plight to us. Jesus reveals what hurts us, but also what heals us. As they say, how well you define the problem will determine how well you solve the problem. Jesus reveals to us the real problem that ails us. And he also reveals the solution for what heals us. We were driving on Stevens Creek back in January and there was some sort of demonstration happening. I don't know what it was, but, but I looked over and there was this enormous sign. And the sign said something like this. No more racism, no more sexism, no more militarism, no more ageism, no more classism, no more elitism. <laughs> it had all the isms on the sign. And I thought to myself, is that the real problems with our world? The answer is no. In the light of Jesus, we realize that those are only symptoms of the real problem. The real problem goes much deeper and is much more dangerous. And Jesus described it more clearly than anyone else ever did. Jesus, the light, described the situation that we are in, that we are in the grip of something we cannot free ourselves. That thing is sin, evil, and death. We are in the bondage to sin. Evil runs right through our hearts and death. Uh, We live in the fear of death. And we live within a a world which refuses to believe this, which means their solution is faulty. They know, the world knows, that death is a problem, of course, but no one talks about it. The topic is avoided at all costs. The world never uses the word sin. Sin is not in anyone's vocabulary anymore. And this is obvious, if you type sin into your iPhone, Siri will change it to sun. (laughs) And while evil is acknowledged, it's vaguely blamed on some guys out there, some bad guys. And once we get rid of them, life will finally work. Evil couldn't reside in my heart. The world refuses to acknowledge the real problem and therefore their solution is faulty they place their hope in the products of the enlightenment in the potential of humanity and the potential of technology they believe that humanity with the help of technology will progress to some sort of utopia 
defeating death in the process. But in the light of Jesus, we know this isn't true. He's described the situation we are in clearly. We are in the grip of sin, evil, and death. This is a great gift, you know, to to know the real problem and therefore to know the right solution. What is the solution? Well, Jesus shares it. He is the answer. He's the solution. He is the answer to the problem of sin, evil, and death. Only he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Only he is the truth that sets us free from all that junk. Only he went through death and came out the other side alive, conquering sin, evil, and death for all time. Yes, Easter is two weeks away. I can't wait. The light of Jesus shines into all the darkness of sin, evil, and death, and the darkness has not and will not overcome him. Amen. And lastly, number four. Jesus, the light, reveals the Christian's role in society, in the world. Now, not specifically in this text, but what has always struck out, struck me in Jesus claiming to be the light of the world is that he uses the exact same words to describe his followers. In the Sermon on the Mount, he calls you and me the light of the world. Exact same words. What incredible dignity he gives us. You know, Christians are, are said to be ordinary people who make extraordinary claims. But you could turn that around to say Christians are ordinary people about whom Jesus makes extraordinary claims. We are lights. Jesus says, follow me and you will not walk in darkness, but you will glow you will glow with my light. Follow me and you will become a light. That's a promise. No matter who you are, where you are, or what you're doing, this is your role in our world. Os Guinness says, everyone, everywhere, in everything. Everyone, everywhere, in everything. And does the world ever need us to glow right now? More than ever, our world needs Christians to glow, especially in the face of the violence against our Asian community, especially in the face of violence against our black community, especially in the face of violence against the other. Everyone is made in the image of God. As we said last week, no one is disposable. Everyone, everywhere, in everything, we fulfill our role 
as lights in this world by following the light of the world into every day and glowing, participating with him in shining light into the darkness. As Paul told the Philippian Christians, in a world that is oppressively dark, go and shine like stars. And now we come back to Amanda Gorman's poem. In her ending, remember she asked the question, are we brave enough to be the light? And so to borrow her words, are we brave enough to be light? Reflecting Jesus' light within the shade of this world. May the Lord give us the courage. Well, to close our time this morning, I'd like to finish with a short reflection. And there's two questions that I invite you to reflect on during this time. Where do you need the light to shine today and this week? Maybe in your life or a loved one's life. And the second question is, where do you need Jesus to help you be brave, to reflect his light? I invite you to take a moment and invite Jesus, the light, into one or both of these questions while Tim plays the violin for us.
Well, thank you, Tim. Now receive this benediction. This week, may God shine the light of his glory into your hearts. And may Christ, the light of the world, reveal his presence to you. And may the Spirit renew the image of God in you. Now go and walk as children of light. Amen. Go in peace.